Anyway, um, Mark Antony. Mark Antony was known as the silver-throated orator of Rome. And uh, history tells us that he was a brilliant statesman, that he was a field general, that he was courageous, that he was strong. And on top of all those things, he was even one good-looking dude. And uh, it was interesting that he could have become a world ruler, but for one serious character flaw that he had. And a personal tutor of his got so frustrated one day, he just yelled in his face. He said, oh, Marcus, oh, Marcus, you colossal child. He said, you're able to conquer the world, but you're unable to resist the temptation. And that indictment, I think, holds true for many of us. The ability to conquer the world that God has placed you in, but for one serious character flaw, unable to resist the temptation. And so as we go through, I want you to consider the fact that many of us are subject to temptations, if not all of us obviously are. And if we're going to be renewed by a new mind and not conform to the world that we live in, we need to be able to stand firm when we're tempted. And uh, for the next couple of sessions, that's what we're going to talk about because I don't think there's anything that is more applicable to every one of us that are here, and that is to try to identify... Well, I mean, I see three problems, basically. One is we need to define what temptation is. We need to define it because I have found in my conversations with people there is a tremendous amount of uh, confusion in identifying the differences between trials and temptations. Trials and temptations, which is which? We need to define temptation. We need to recognize it when it rears its ugly face and we also need to be able to resist it. So in this particular session what we'll do is we'll define it We'll learn to recognize it, and then in the next couple of sessions, we'll take a look at how can we practically resist it. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, it deals with both subjects. It deals with trials, and it also deals with temptations. And so what we need to do is try to separate the two so that there will no longer be confusion in any of our minds as far as what is the difference between them, and then we can move on and actually deal with it. James chapter 1, start with uh, verse 2. We read, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if, one of you, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I like that. Don't be deceived about basically two things. Don't be deceived about the nature of trials, and don't be deceived about the nature of temptation. And so as we go through this, let me ask you a question. What is a trial? What is a trial? Anybody? What's a trial? Okay, it's a test. This is a test. A test of what? Okay, a test of your faith. You notice that? Look what it says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith. A trial is a testing of your faith. Okay, who originates it? Pardon me? Okay, Satan. We got, we got, okay, how many, we got, uh, we got Satan, how many hands for Satan? Oh, I know, I mean, I don't mean a round of applause. I mean, how many people, how many believe that Satan originates trials? Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Okay, so that's a, kind of a half a vote. Okay, all right. How many agree with that? Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. So let me see some hands. Oh, oh no, people think, oh, we're getting Pentecostal here. It's okay. <laughs> you know, raise them a little bit. It's all right. You can get a little excited. Man, you know, I think the, the, the wonderful thing about, you know, churches that get excited is that they're not afraid to show their enthusiasm. If they could just temper it with a little bit of, you know, understanding of the Word of God, what a great balance that would be. You know, it, it's okay. It's okay to get a little excited. Okay, you can give Jesus a hand every now and then. You can raise your arms if you, you know, if you want to thank God. It's okay. Gee, man, we got all these people who are so uptight. You know, it's like, oh, oh hallelujah. <laughs> man, it's amazing. But okay, how many think Satan originates every trial that you go through? It's originated by Satan. No. How many think God does it? How many want? Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. Okay. All right. Question. Is that a question? Well, that's what we're trying to identify here. <laughs> that's what we're trying to identify here. Are we talking about temptation or are we talking about trials? Okay, let's talk about trials. Who originates trials? God. But can Satan? But why does he do it? See, here's the problem. See, you ever see that bumper sticker? I mean, how, what's, what's the nature of trials? How do trials happen? Yeah. You've seen that bumper sticker, didn't you? That's probably not the one to... to but, you know, it's amazing what these people will identify with, though. You've, you've seen the, the bumper sticker, stuff happens. <laughs> and that's S-T-U-F, okay? <laughs> yeah, it must be. You've seen that, right? Well, check this out. It says, Consider it all my... I'll joy my brethren when you encounter various trials. When you encounter, guess what it means? When you fall into. 
When you fall into difficult situations, when you fall into tough times, when stuff happens in your life. See, not everything that happens to us do we cause to happen. Okay? And this will be a very... I doubt it in your case. (laughs) Gee. (laughs) Man. Give you an example. Give you an example. Here's trials, right? Turn to Job chapter 1. Okay, here's a guy that went through some trials. How about um, Daniel? What did Daniel do to deserve to get thrown into a lion's den? Huh? He obeyed God. That's what he did. He obeyed God. And he got thrown in the lion's den. What did uh, Joseph do to get thrown into prison in Egypt? It's what he didn't do. They got him thrown into prison. Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife wanted to have sex with him. He said, no, I can't do that. I can't sin against God. So she said, oh, you better or else I'm going to yell rape. Oh, gee, well, let's see. Have sex with you or yell rape. Go to prison. Now, see, the wisdom of the world is... (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like, no, I can't do that. So what happened? She yelled rape and he got thrown in prison. He fell into a trial. But he didn't do anything to deserve it. Look at Job chapter 1. What did Job do? Look at this. This is great. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, or Job for those of you who aren't familiar with the book. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Okay, he had seven sons, his possessions. He had a lot of stuff. That's the whole point of the beginning of all this. And he was a guy who was blameless before God. He was upright. He feared God, not only for himself, but he also offered sacrifices for his family. The man loved God. That's the point. So then we get down to verse 7, and Satan comes before God and says, uh, and God says, where have you been? And he knew already, but for our sake, he tells us, he's roaming around on earth, walking around on it. Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Well, there's a reason he loves you. Look at all the stuff you gave him. You put a hedge around him, you're protecting him. He's got a lot of material things. He's got a big family. He's got everything a man could ever want here on earth. No wonder he loves you. It's kind of like all those who love God when, when things are going great in their life. And so the point that he was making was, well, no kidding. You know, I know a lot of guys who would love God if it meant they were guaranteed to win a Super Bowl. Right? And I know a lot of people would love God if it meant they were guaranteed to make X amount of dollars a year. And there's a lot of people who love God based on what their criteria would be. But it's interesting, that's not the way our relationship with the Lord works. And he said, well, okay, have you considered him? Job said, well, I mean, and Satan said, well, you know what? I get, I'll guarantee you this. If I, I, you let me go after him, he's not going to love you anymore. If you let me bring a pain and affliction and a trial into his life, he's not going to love you anymore. And so look in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only don't put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Okay, what, let's just stop for a moment. Now, what have you learned so far about trials? What have you learned about trials? Anybody going through a trial in their life? Tough time? A little difficult situation? Okay, let me ask you something. What did you just learn about what you're going through? God allows it. Stuff doesn't happen to God's people. Right? You, you follow the point? There isn't anything that you and I are going through that God doesn't allow it to happen for the purpose of testing our faith. 
Why? So God can see whether we're really His or not? Does God know whether you're really His or not? Does God know whether you're a child of God or not? Okay, who has a problem with the identity? We do. I don't really know how much I love the Lord. I'm not real sure unless things come into my life that I think would possibly separate me from loving Him. I don't know how deep my love is with God until those things happen. But what I begin to find is that, you know what? When I say I love Him and I go through tough times and I still love Him, then I begin to realize the depth of my love for Him. Not the depth of His love for me. He's already demonstrated that by Jesus dying on the cross. He can not get any deeper than that. But what I don't know about me is how much do I really love Him? So what God allows to happen is, and it could come at the hand of Satan, but God allows trials in your life and mine so that you and I know the depth of the level of the commitment and relationship that we say that we have with God. And nothing happens that God doesn't permit to happen. And I'll tell you what, that's the best news, if we learn anything else, that's the best news that any of us can walk away from here with, is to know that what you're going through, God has allowed it for the purposes of testing your faith so that you will have endurance and that you will come to maturity in your relationship with Him. Isn't that wonderful? That's some good stuff. Well, look what happens to him. I mean, Job just gets nailed here. Okay, so it happens, and here's the way it basically happened. Now, it happened on the day, verse 13, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, Hey, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside him, the Sabians attacked, and they took him. And they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another guy came in. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another guy came in. The Chaldeans formed three bands and raid and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew them. And the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came in and said, your sons and your daughters were eating, drinking wine in your oldest brother's, their oldest brother's house. And a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on all the young people, and they died. And, <clears throat> and I'm having a bad day. I don't know how bad your days are, but they can get much better than this. Or, as they say in proper English, they don't get much worse than this. This is a pretty crummy day. And sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I need to read this to remember what a bad day is like. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my, I lost my job, I got laid off. Well, that's a bad day. Now, add on top of it, everybody you know got killed and everything you have got taken away from you and everything was gone and, and that's pretty much what happened to Job. That's a bad day. So look what Job said in verse 21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Ooh, stop, think about this. Here's a trial. Was there temptations involved in the trial? Oh, good. What? What was the temptation? To blame God. Okay, now you follow this? The trial was allowed by God for the purpose of testing our faith. Satan took it and wanted to use it to have Job deny God and sin before God and blame God. So the trial, which has a positive result, which is growth in our faith, can go one road, but the trial can also take another path altogether where we can actually sin before God. All right? We're going down, here's a trial, but now the trial could be positive or the trial could be negative. And when you make that fork in the road, it's called temptation. It's called temptation. 
And that's what we need to take a look at. So as we go through it, now the question is, what is a temptation? What's a temptation? Choice. Choice between what and what? Okay, choice between good and bad. All right? Now the question is, well, let's look at the definition. Okay? Anything or anyone that entices us to do wrong by promising to provide pleasure or gain. Temptation. The choice to do wrong with the promise of pleasure or gain. Now we've got a whole other problem. What is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is bad? And how do we know the difference? Because we can't recognize temptation until we recognize what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. See, take that illustration again of Joseph in prison. Okay, well, gee, what is bad? Going to jail is not good. It wouldn't seem to be good. Right? But he has a choice. Having sex with Potiphar's wife or going to prison. There's the choice. What's good, what's bad? If we're conformed into the image of the world, we say going to prison is bad. And we rationalize the situation, but my heart's not really in it, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. God knows my heart. Right? And we walk away and say, I didn't do anything wrong. So how do you know what's good and bad? Huh? Oh, I'm sorry, what did you say? There's the guideline. You said what? Okay, if you're tempted. But my point is, we don't know if we're tempted until we know what the choices are that are good and bad. We don't... Okay, the standard. What's the standard? Okay, yeah, we need to go back to the rule book. You see what I'm talking about? Okay, I've got choices now. The choices are go to jail or the choices are have sex with somebody else's wife. Well, gee, I'll just look it up. Well, having sex with somebody else's wife is wrong. Can't find anything in here about going to jail being wrong. If it means doing what's right. So I guess I go to jail. How about what? And how about 12 inches of snow in Anchorage today? You know what I love? His wife moved six chairs away. Very smart. (laughs) Okay. What is good and what is bad? The Bible says this. Psalm 106.1 Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. God is good. Jeremiah 3.11 For God is good. John 10.14 Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 1 Peter 3.11, turn from evil and do good. So I come to the conclusion that God is good and anything that falls short of the moral character of God would be what's wrong, evil, bad. All right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the perfection of God. Say, here's how we identify what's wrong. Anything that's short of perfection or what God says is right, becomes wrong. I'll, let, me, let me throw some things out to you and you tell me what you think. Okay, you're talking to somebody else 
and what is what would be right in our conversation with one another? What would be a right thing to do? Pardon me? Okay, we build one another up. It says to edify one another, be gracious, and, and, and uh, to, to build up another person. Okay, that's good. Now, what would be bad? Gossip is bad. Gossip is wrong. Tearing down that person is sin. So, here it is. We've got a choice. The choice is to do good, which is to build someone up, or the choice is to do bad, which is tear somebody down. The temptation is, I've got temporary pleasure in ripping somebody apart. There's the temptation to provide something pleasurable for the moment to do something that's wrong. So the upside is, let's edify each other, let's build each other up. The downside of temptation would be, go ahead and rip them apart. All right? What else? How about speak the truth in love? The upside, the right thing to do is to speak the truth to one another. The downside is what? Why? But we can rationalize, justify that as well. Well, I'm not really telling a lie in this case because I don't want to really hurt their feelings. And all it's kind of, blah, 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 blah. and so we lie. We're tempted to lie. Why? For the temporary pleasure, whatever that is that it offers. And so the expedient thing to do, oftentimes, is to fall to temptation and lie because we don't want to deal with whatever it's going to lead to if we tell the truth. Okay. Upside. Work for a living. Downside. Steal. Temptation of stealing is what? I can get something that I can't afford to buy because it takes too long to earn it, so I can have it now if I just take it. Temporary pleasure, again. Does this make a little more sense? Okay, there's good and there's bad. There are moral absolutes. No matter how you try to get away from it, there are moral absolutes. There are things that God says are wrong, and there are things that God says that are right. And what temptation is, is to get us to do that which God says are wrong. Don't do it. Now let's take a look at some facts concerning temptation. So we understand that what a trial is. A trial is God's method of building us up in our faith to produce endurance so that we can hang in there in a tough world that we live in. So that we will become perfected in our faith before God. And so that the offside of it, uh, uh, the offspring of it is, so that we will be confident and assured that we really do love the God we say we love. But temptation has a negative, a negative end result every time if we give in to it. Okay? Let's, talk, let, let's look at it. James 1, 13 through 15 says that there, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We're going to take a look at basically four things, four facts concerning temptation. Four facts concerning temptation. And I think that as we understand it uh, and recognize it, it will make a lot more sense as we begin to deal with how to resist it. But James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. The point is very simple. This, simply this. Temptation is inevitable. Tempt, it's, you know, I'm amazed at how many people fall into sin and they're so naive of the fact that the option is available. I don't know how this happened to me. It just happened. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of it, and it just kind of happened. It just didn't happen. There's a process that takes place previous to that. Now, you may not be aware of the process, I'll agree with you there, but it just didn't happen. 
Nobody sins without knowing that they're getting into it, but they may not recognize the process. And that's why we'll go through to recognize what the process of temptation is. Number one, though, is temptation is inevitable. It's inevitable. All of us are going to face it. He says, when tempted, you can bank on it, you can be sure of it, you can count on it. Every day that you wake up and you go to work, you go to wherever you're going, whatever you're doing during the course of the day, I'll guarantee you this, the the, the option to sin before God is constantly present. When tempted, bank on it. It's always going to be there. You know, it'd be nice to live in a world that temptation wasn't a reality. It'd be a great place, and that's what heaven will be like. It would be wonderful not to have choices to do right or to do wrong. But the reality of it is we do and we need to be aware of what those choices are. And, uh, you know, I think it, 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 I, the other thing, too, is I think it's interesting and we, we, don't, we need not be naive about it. But many of us think, man, you know, in this marketplace that we live in, boy, there's so many temptations that the rest of the world doesn't have. I mean, I've heard that and you've probably heard that and you may even have said it. And to some degree, you know, you go, wow, that makes sense. Well, let me just tell you something. You can have a monk who's cloistered behind walls somewhere, someplace in the world, and he can struggle with the same temptations that you and I do in L.A. or Chicago or New York and in business or at home or wherever you are. You can have the exact same temptations. And what usually happens to people who move away from an area to get out of temptations, they end up falling into sin in the new place that they move because their resistance is down and they forget the fact that temptation is present there as well. Boy, how did this happen in small town USA? Well, gee, because sin is present there as well. So we need to be aware of that. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you feel guilty about going through temptation? How many of you ever feel guilty about being tempted to do or say such and such? You ever feel bad about that? Man, I do. It's like, how can I think like that? How can I just think what I just thought? I mean, we've all been, I hope, I would think that we've all been there. Well, the good news is that, guess what? Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of our need. What does that say? Was Jesus tempted? You think he was all bummed out and depressed over the fact that he was tempted? Don't think so. He recognized that it's a reality of a fallen nature, a sin world, a world of sin, and an enemy who wants to destroy God's people. That's his tactic. That's his strategy. That's okay. Don't be bummed out. Don't get all depressed and think something's wrong with you spiritually if you struggle with temptation in your life. We're all going to be tempted. And the good news is, guess what? I'm going to be tempted by things that the rest of the world, somebody else is tempted by. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. As weird as I may think I am, and the things that I struggle with, and I don't want to share with anybody else, as weird as some of those things can be sometimes, the reality of it is, there are other people who are struggling with the same thing. Man, I sure take comfort in that, because I don't, that way I don't think, man, I'm just one weird dude out here all by myself. And you know what the real comfort is? I can go to Jesus, who was tempted in all things. You know what blows me away? Stop and think about what that means for a moment. Are you tempted with 
stealing? Jesus was. Are you tempted, tempted in sexual sin? Jesus was. I know that offends some people and they kind of get all blown away by that. But let's look at the reality of this. Are you tempted with lying? Are you tempted by anger? Are you tempted with not doing what God's called you to do? Are you tempted by all that? Jesus was. And yet, he was without sin. So what that tells me is I can go to him and say, Lord, you know what I'm struggling with because you've struggled with it yourself. But you've overcome it and you didn't fall into it. And I can count on you to get me out of it. But God provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And you know what? That's what this is all about. Approaching the throne of grace and confidence because Jesus went through it and he overcame it. So temptation is inevitable. Don't feel weird about being tempted. There's nothing spiritually wrong. But we also see this, that temptation is never directed by God. Never directed by God. When tempted, no one should ever say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And we learned it as we went through 1 John. That there's, and this is the message that we heard from him and declared to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So the point of temptation is, God does not tempt anyone to do evil. Will he try your faith? Yes. But the end result is good. Temptation's end result is bad if we fall to it. You follow that? So a trial is the testing of your faith to produce endurance, to produce spiritual growth, to enhance our relationship with God, whereas temptation is something that's offered by Satan and him alone because it is not from God. God will never do anything to put temptation before you to sin before him because it can't, it's against his moral character. It's impossible. So it says, don't let any of us ever believe that. What's our tendency to do when we, when we, when we uh, fall into sin? Blame God. I hear it in the homosexual movement all the time. That's the way God made me. God made me this way. And if God didn't want me doing this, then he shouldn't have made me this way. But I hear it all the time. I hear it in other areas. God gave me a, uh, uh, God made me with the desire to have a lot of things. I just like stuff. So God made me that way. That's why I steal. Or God gave me a tremendous appetite for sex. You know? And if God didn't want me to go out there and just have sex with whomever, he shouldn't have made me that way. It's God's fault. No, it's not. It's impossible for God to tempt anyone to do evil because it's totally outside of his moral character. It is absolutely impossible. God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. Ever. And it's important that we understand it. Classic example, Adam and Eve. We've talked about it before. Whose fault was it that Adam sinned? Whose fault did Adam think it was? It was Eve's fault first. Right? You gave me this chick, right? And she made me do it. However she did it, I don't know. But she made me do it. God said, no, she didn't make you do it. Oh, then it must have been your fault then, God. <laughs> Because you made her. And you know what? The, the statement we learned several weeks ago, and that is this. I am responsible. If I sin before God, I am responsible. God's not. My wife's not. My kid's not. My employer's not. If 
I want to cheat on my expense account or steal something from the company, it's not their fault because they didn't give me the raise or do the things they promised. It is my fault. I am responsible before God. It's no one else's fault. If my kids don't want to study, it's not their teacher's fault. It's their fault. They are responsible. I am responsible. If we would just adopt that into our terminology and our, into our language, it would change the way we live our life. I am responsible. God's not to blame. I am the blame. Because God can't tempt me. I'm responsible. Which leads us into the third point, and that's simply this. That temptation, temptation's an individual matter. Underline the word each. Each one is tempted. James 1.14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Each one is, in, is tempted by his own evil desire. It's an individual matter. I can't blame anybody else. I can't blame God. I can't blame any of you. If I fall into sin and do that which is wrong, it's my fault because it was my own desire that led me to it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. So sin takes place when I agree to the temptation and follow it. Example, a place friend of mine who uh, works undercover in narcotics and a lot of times they, they confiscate all kind of stuff. Cash, drugs, weapons, you know, you name it. I mean, they load, they're loading up trucks all the time. But they're the first ones to get there. Guess what? Man, there's money there. There's drugs there. There's guns there. And nobody else knows it, but the first people will get there. And nobody knows how much. Temptation. To do what's right, they turn it all in. To do what's wrong, they can steal some of it. I said, how do you handle it? Very simple. If I see cocaine, it looks like flour. It's just flour. Why would anyone steal bags of flour? If I see money, it's just paper. Why would anybody steal any paper? See, he, he's had to change his whole thought process so he doesn't fall to temptation. Like the friend of mine I told you in the bank, as long as she continues to remember she's counting paper and not money, she doesn't have a problem. But temptation is an individual matter, which means this, and we'll talk more about this in a coming session, but hey, you know what? There are things, that I, I got chinks in my armor that you may not have. I struggle with things that you may not struggle with. But I'll guarantee you, you're struggling things with what he may not be struggling with. See, all of us struggle with different things. And what we're going to talk about in the future is don't ever minimize the temptations that other people struggle with because you don't struggle in those same areas. Because what may not destroy you may destroy someone else. Temptation is an individual matter. Individual matter. And it's like we get that chink in the armor, and I'll guarantee you that that's what you're going to be attacked at most, that particular area. When a person says, I won't do that, it'll never happen to me, bang, it'll happen. Because you don't recognize the danger of it. And then the last thing is, is that sin, that temptation always follows the same process. And we'll just go through it a little bit at a time. It says, but each one is tempted, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after his desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full growth gives birth to death. And basically, here's the process. Are you ready for it? It kind of starts like this. Number one, the bait is dropped. It's a, this is actually a fishing term. The word entice means to, uh, it's a fishing term. Is anybody in here fish, fisher people? Fisher type people? 
Okay, let me ask you a question. Can you catch fish without using bait? Oh, yeah, use a net. Forget it. No, forget it. If I start asking fishermen, they're going to get technical on me. Okay, somebody that doesn't know anything about fishing, just run with me for this for a second. Can you catch fish without using bait? No, thank you very much. Yeah, forget the fishing people. All the rest of you answer these. Okay, let me ask you this. Does the same bait entice all fish? No. Good. Does the same bait entice all fish every season of the year? No. What? Different times of the year? Use different bait. You know, different water temperatures, different outdoor temperatures. All these things change, right? So same, you know, does just looking at the bait get the fish into the boat? No. But there's a danger there, right? All right? And the danger is, basically, the way it goes is, the bait is dropped. It's just wiggling around, looking real pretty. And then the desire is attracted to the bait. The desire is attracted to the bait. Ooh, I like what I see. I don't care what it is. I like what I see. And we begin to be attracted to the bait. Satan, the ultimate fisherman, is throwing that hook with the bait on it and he knows it makes you and I tick. He knows the weak area and he goes after it. And he just throws it out there. And here's when sin occurs. Sin occurs when we take the bait. See, the difference here is that the bait is dropped and Jesus never sinned. The inner desire that we have with a fallen sin nature is that there's an area of our life that's still attracted to things that are in rebellion against God. Where we sin and fall to temptation is when we take the bait. When we take the bait. And sin results in tragic consequences. That's why it says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he reaps. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't be deceived. This is how sin works. It has tragic consequences. And the consequences? Hooked, skinned, get it, and fried. Hooked, skinned, get it, and fried. Man, I don't know. Maybe that's what we need to picture sometimes when we begin to dangle and kind of nibble on the bait. When we nibble on the bait. I'll tell you what. You start nibbling on the bait and it's not long before you're hooked. See, the fish gets in trouble when it leaves its hiding place and it goes out looking at something that it has no business looking at and dabbling in something it has no business dabbling in and tasting something it should never taste. Hooked, fried, skinned, gutted. Isn't that sad? Let me just close with the story. This radio personality, Paul Harvey, tells a story of an Eskimo and how he kills a wolf. Now this will be something that all of us can take home today and learn something from. How to kill a wolf. This is what he writes. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. See, now, that does nothing for me. But it does for a wolf. Okay, got the point? It says, when a wolf follows his nose, begins to lick it, he begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. 
So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. That's how an Eskimo kills a wolf. Doesn't have to do a whole bunch, does he? Just needs to stand back and wait and let the wolf kill himself. That's the nature of temptation. See, all Satan does is he just throws out the bait. And then we go and do all the rest of it ourselves. That's why we need to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that Jesus was tempted in all things just like we are, and yet without sin. And he is available, and he is there, and he is willing to give us an out, an escape, whenever we're tempted, so that you and I may be able to endure the temptation. Next week, we'll take a look at how we can resist, in a practical way, daily temptations that we go through. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. Thank you for uh, the practical words that you always have for us, uh, just to recognize uh, the nature of trials, that they're to produce endurance, that they produce maturity in our faith, and that nothing ever happens in our life that you don't allow for your purposes and for your glory. God, help us also to recognize temptation, that its end result always is tragic and there's consequences for it, and it alienates our relationship with you when we fall into sin. God, help us to see it. Don't be deceived by it. The process is very simple. Lord, help us to recognize the bait that is dropped before us on a regular basis. Help us to flee from it and to turn to Jesus, who was tempted in all things and yet did not sin. And we just thank you for the victory that we can have over all temptation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.